read Psalm 19 together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, and than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is a great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This morning we're going to be looking at a great psalm. This psalm has been hugely challenging to me. Psalm number 19. As has been talked about, it's about how God communicates with us. It's about how the invisible God reveals himself. He reveals himself by his words in this psalm. He talks and we listen. He acts, we see. He reveals, we have a revelation. Now, I, I'm going to tell you a story that I um, was debating because I know my mum is listening. But my favourite types of holidays are going on a motorbike tour uh, with my mates. You might be able to see where this is going. We're riding around all, um, seeing new sites, riding around all day, and then uh, campfires by night. And it really is a real, real pleasure. Favourite favorite type of holiday. One of the greatest places that I've been is Switzerland. There they know how to make roads. Um, for the biker, straight line acceleration, as thrilling as it is, is nothing compared with sweeping bends and corners. And when the conditions are perfect, visibility is good, the road is open, the tarmac is flawless. In such conditions of these, amateurs like myself start to push the boat out. How far can you lean over on your motorbike? How fast can you get round that corner? Can you make the entire width of your rear tyre touch the, the tarmac? Or are you going to leave some chicken strips around the side where you were too chicken to lean over? <laughs> you have to concentrate. It's thrilling. The heart races. And I do really love it. But now and again, even though the road is screaming out for some dramatic cornering, um, the mountainous backdrop can be so great that the entire group, whoever's there, without really chatting, automatically eases up and slows down because these views are just too good to miss. We no longer want to concentrate but to absorb the phenomenal views. It would seem, looking round at the Alps, 
trumps the exhilaration of a motorbike race. These first few verses in the psalm, David talks about God's unspoken words, which is our first point. God's unspoken words. So what does that mean? Verses 1 to 6 talk about the world, the universe, how creation reveals something of God. Right there in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Why is it that we love mountaintop views on a clear day? A beautiful sunset over the ocean, a walk through the countryside. Why are we disappointed when the clouds uh, block out the view of the blood moon? What's the big deal? It's going to be red instead of white? What is the big deal? Why would you pay more for a room with a sea view? Why is it great to get away from the city lights and stargaze, or go up to the highlands and catch a glimpse of the northern lights? Why are there people out there asking for David Attenborough box sets for their birthday? In today's age, we know exactly what most of these things are. The sun and the stars, some gas that's really hot. Um, I've got a picture up there of Ayers Rock in Australia. I don't know if you can see it, but it is a massive rock. That is what it is. The, gra- the Grand Canyon is a massive hole in the ground. The ocean is just a lot of water. How is it these things are able to stir up amazement inside? It's because it is literally God's handiwork. The skies proclaim his, the work of his hands, his handiwork. He is glorious and therefore it makes perfect sense that his artistry would fill us with wonder. The psalm goes on. Day after day, these things pour forth speech. As God sustains the universe and with each day that passes, we're shown his power and his divine nature. And then we come to what seems like a bit of a contradiction. Verse 3, they have no speech, no words, no sound. Yet verse 4, their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So, does it speak or doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. It's a poetic way of saying uh, about unspoken words. We hear unspoken words all the time. There are plenty of ways to express yourself without speaking. If I explain something to you, something about uh, how the train network works, you can tell me without speaking that you don't understand and that you don't find it interesting, or both. (laughs) You may have that blank look on your face. You you just seem like you don't want to hear any more. Perhaps you even wince. You've communicated all that to me without speaking. And this is something like what we have in these verses. God speaks to us without words every single day through his creation. He points to himself through it. It declares, I am here, I am powerful, I am wonderful. And in verses 5 and 6 next, David talks about the sun. David is swift here to answer the sun worshippers of the day, of the ancient world, by saying God, being the one true God, pitches a tent for the sun. Don't worship the sun, worship him. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Israel is warned of a similar type thing. When you look up at the sky, it says, and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down and worshipping. 
God made the sun, God sets it on its course, and it's compared to a running champion and a bridegroom. The sun, with all its power and all its heat and all its beauty, points only to the creator. And we're given this image, the second time we've had this image, um, about nothing being deprived from its heat. So you see it in verses 4 and verses 6. They're words to the end of the world. Nothing is deprived from its warmth. It's saying we all see creation. No one hasn't seen it. It has gone out to the ends of the earth. No one has been deprived from these unspoken words. I'm going to read you a quote now. I want you to try and think if you know who said it. I think that when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be what it is, you are naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, a feeling of admiration, and you almost feel a desire to worship something. We, all of us, share a kind of religious reverence for the beauties of the universe, for the complexity of life, for the sheer magnitude of the cosmos. The person that said that is Richard Dawkins, perhaps the most famous, uh, famous atheist of our day. He's passionate and outspoken in his disbelief, but what he doesn't say is that the universe doesn't fill him with awe and wonder. Do you see what I mean? The magnificence of God's handiwork invites awe, it invites admiration, and it invites praise. Although Richard Dawkins doesn't believe it, God's handiwork is speaking to him, and it speaks to all of us. One of the benefits I uh, enjoy of working so early in the mornings is on occasion you get to be uh, in London at dawn. No one's really around, and with the weather that we've been enjoying recently, 7am is actually a pleasant time for a stroll. I was walking in uh, around St Paul's Cathedral uh, a few Saturdays ago, and I had been thinking lots about these first six verses in this psalm. And as I walked through this tiny little garden that they had there, um, there was grass and trees and some birds and squirrels doing whatever it is they do. And uh, I, I stood and I ended up watching this little scene for about 15 minutes. I was actually uh, quite moved by it. It was fantastic and it's not something I would say I often feel, I thought that actually these creatures, as we've sung about in that uh, song we weren't sure we would know, uh, they're doing exactly what they were made for. They point me, or at the time they pointed me, to admire God. I am one of God's creatures, as are you. Are we doing what we were made for? And as I've thought about this psalm, um, I have to confess that I suppose I've started to appreciate nature and the universe a bit more properly. The direction of my praise goes to God much quicker. Although I've always acknowledged God created the world and the universe, I wouldn't think about it every time I was impressed by nature. Previously, I may have just thought, oh, isn't that amazing, and left the thought there. At Life Group uh, quite some time ago, I saw some roses in uh, Peter and Gitter's garden. And these roses were so red, it almost looked like an optical illusion. Uh, they looked computer generated. The colours were so, 
I don't know, had depth and all that type of thing. I hadn't seen anything look quite like that before. And uh, I remember thinking, that's, that's quite cool. And I left the thought there. This psalm has helped me to realise, um, yes, that is amazing, but no, no, he's amazing. I turned to praise much, much sooner, and I am grateful for that. Uh, one commentator I'd read uh, in preparing for this said, we actually walk upright so that we're able to look up at the stars and the skies and so that they can minister uh, to us. So these first six verses teach us about God's unspoken words, that creation speaks to all of us, declaring the majesty of God the Creator, and that God is clearly seen by the unspoken words of his creation. So then, David jumps then into verses 7 to 11 onto God's spoken words. We've had God's unspoken words, we're now talking about direct spoken communication with God. God reveals who he is more by speaking to us. And the whole Bible is from God and righteous altogether, as it says in verse 9. Now, uh, now David really goes to town when talking about God's words. Verse 7 to 10 are overloaded with positives. The law is perfect. Statutes are trustworthy. Precepts are right. Commands are radiant. Do we think David is intentionally describing the spoken words of God in a greater and more passionate way than the general awesomeness of creation. This adjective-heavy section would seem to suggest that. He then says that God's words are more precious than gold, much pure gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. This combination here, gold, much pure gold, and honey, honey from the honeycomb, reads like a nice turn of phrase for us, but in Hebrew, this repetition the aim is to hyper-intensify the point. The sweetest of all honeys imaginable, uh, more precious than all the gold in the world, than anything that money could buy. David's delight when he says uh, God's words have more value to him than anything that money could buy, again, is another huge, huge challenge. You'd have to remember that David only had access to a fraction of the Bible that we have today, the books of the law and maybe a few more, does anyone here, uh, can they not wait to get stuck into Leviticus? Or perhaps, like me, reading any part of the Bible can have a chore-like nature to it. I hadn't heard of William McPherson. So if you had, you're going to know this story. Uh, he was a man in charge of a stone quarry in America. And he lost his hands and eyes in a dynamite explosion. Um, he wanted to read the Bible, but obviously he can't read Braille with uh, artificial hands. Uh, he even tried to read the raised bits of Braille with his lips, uh, but the dynamite had burnt all the sensation away. But he did discover that he could, um, he could distinguish the letters with his tongue. Um, and this wasn't without difficulty, as his tongue would bleed if he read too much. But anyway, when his story was recorded, he had read the Bible four times over in this, in this manner. So he got it. Left to uh, its own devices, our hearts uh, won't feel like that. And we need the Spirit to, well, I need the Spirit to change me, certainly, in this regard, 
to warm up my heart and rewire it so that I can delight in God's words in the same way that William McPherson did and as David seems to say he does. And I do wonder, why is it not like that for me? It makes me see, think, uh, am I a real Christian? Why don't I feel like this, like this psalm is describing? Especially when you think about the positives that, are, that come from reading God's words. I don't know if you noticed that when you were reading. They refresh the soul. They make us wise. They give our hearts joy. They give light to the eyes. There is often a mistaken impression about the Bible and about Christianity as a whole that God is out there to spoil our fun and that life just wouldn't be as good if we followed God. According to this psalm, this is not the case. Not according to Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the one that meditates on the law of the Lord. God wants to bless us. He wants us to be happy. And he reveals himself by his words. That's what happens, says Psalm 19. Your soul is refreshed. Your hearts are filled with joy. David's heart was filled with joy. And this is why he's able to describe it in this way. So this misunderstanding then about God spoiling my fun, is this why my heart is still a bit resistant to his words? Why I read my Bible out of duty and then watch TV for delight? It's this lie from Genesis chapter 3 that God doesn't want what is best for you, that he doesn't want is, uh, what is good for us, uh, that he's a a cosmic spoil sport. I would never say such things with my lips, but obviously the idea is still pertinent in my foolish heart. Do you have joy? Do you want to have joy? Do you want to be refreshed? Then we, I, must ask the Spirit, plead with him to help us read and meditate and absorb the words uh, of God so that they penetrate our stubborn and hard hearts. And we must also take note of the negative implication that we can draw from these uh, couple of verses. If God's word refreshes the soul, if God's words give joy to the heart, if God's words make us wise, surely that means without them, the soul can't be refreshed. The heart cannot have real joy, and we're not wise, but simple. Listening to God as he speaks then, is of paramount importance to our well-being. So the first part of the psalm describes God's unspoken words in the things we see in creation. Second part talks about the value of his spoken words through the Bible. And thirdly, the psalm points to God the redeeming word. God the redeeming word. You see, for all David's positivity up till now, we get to verse 12 but who can discern their own errors? It's here we get to the inevitable problem. David confesses that sin and errors in his life and in our lives are so deeply rooted and so, so characteristic. So what does that mean then, so characteristic? I wonder how many people out there that you know that you can think of right now, how many of them uh, would you consider to be greedy? How many would you consider to be selfish? How many think that they're too proud or too arrogant? I'm sure 
you can picture somebody that you would describe that way. It's easy to think of people with those traits, but I don't think it's easy to think of people that think of themselves as having those traits. Do you see the problem with that? Is how do I know then that I'm not the greedy one? How do I know I'm not selfish? How do I know that I'm not proud? No one thinks they're greedy, really, but the world is full of greedy people. No one thinks they're cruel, yet people's feelings are hurt every day. David is saying this problem of sin is so much a part of our nature, a part of our character, that we're blind to it. We cannot discern it in ourselves, and that's pride. He goes on to say the best we can hope for is not to do willful sins, the ones we know are wrong when we're thinking about doing them. But then we have to be honest about that. We do those too. Certainly I uh, often choose rebellion. And there's a warning there about these willful sins in verse 13. Repeating them leads to having them rule over you. It's a tough question to face up to. Um, why? Because it hurts our pride. But is there a willful sin that is ruling over you? And if so, repent. Somehow, David says, though, somehow he and we can be blameless, innocent, pleasing in your sight, Lord. How can this be possible? How can sin be so inherent on the one hand that we can't see most of it, and the sin we can see, we do anyway. How can that person be blameless and innocent? You can't be not, uh, you can't be not innocent, not blameless, not pleasing on the one hand, and be all those things on the other. Well, this is why I've said this is about God the redeeming word. Or I could say God the rescuing word. God's words, spoken and unspoken, tell us how... Uh, tell us how great he is and about his character and about his authority and about his will. But then even more communication comes. The word, that is Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth. He came down to earth and became a man. The invisible God was made visible in Jesus Christ. God's words and will are perfectly communicated in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything God is about is on display in the life and the work and the words and the actions of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself knew that the law was perfect and trustworthy and right and radiant and pure. He knew the Father's words to be precious, as we've read in this psalm, sweeter than honey and of more value than gold. And he had them on his lips all the time. Even on the cross when he was suffering, he shouted out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is quoting scripture from Psalm 22. He lived, breathed and died God's words, knowing its light, its joy and its refreshment. He kept the precepts, the laws, the statutes, had no errors and no hidden thoughts. And in keeping them, in verse 11, he was due great reward because he was truly blameless, truly innocent and truly pleasing to God the Father. And yet he died on the cross and his life, his perfect record, was not how God judged him. 
Instead, it was the lives of sinful people, our sin. If we accept Jesus Christ as the one true God and as our only hope uh, as the Saviour, Jesus Christ bears all the punishment that we accrue, all the things we knowingly do, all the things we can't see that we do. He bears the punishment. And that perfect life that he led is imputed onto us. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect life, blameless, innocent and pleasing. Now David knew something of this. He knew of the coming Messiah. That's how he closes this great psalm. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knew in spite of all his sin, that reconciliation and internal, uh, eternal life with God was God's will, was God's plan. He trusted God could provide and that he would redeem. And our advantage over David, we know that Jesus Christ has come. We have the benefit of history. The Father's will to rescue sinful people is shown through Jesus. That's why Jesus died and rose again to guarantee the redemption of those who call him Lord and Saviour. This morning, do you want your relationship with God to be made right? Turn to him then, the wonderful Saviour, in repentance and without delay. Trust me when I say that it is an unparalleled joy to be able to call on the Lord Jesus and say, my rock, my redeemer, as David did. Shall we pray? Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for who you are. You are the almighty, the all-powerful creator who spoke the universe into existence. The cosmos is yours, Lord, yet you pay great attention to us. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Your care and extravagant love is shown for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so sorry for our willful sins. We are sorry for the rebellion that still lives in our hearts. We know and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, we do not know what to say other than to say thank you. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And thank you for paying the great cost to redeem us. We cannot give you enough praise, enough thanks and enough adoration. Help us to never forget, not even for a moment, the joy that is found in you, Lord, and in your beautiful Son. And Lord, we ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.